read Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can come to you because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we have seen in the passage our brother Mike just read, we are wretched sinners, and we know that we are people who have violated your righteous commands, people who have rebelled against you and people who are enslaved to our sin. Father, we also acknowledge that in spite of this, we have Put our trust and confidence in Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. And God, as we have done this, we ask that you would help us to be Christians that follow you, turning away from our sin and trusting you more and more. And Father, we plead with you that you would make us more like your son Jesus, that when the scriptures command us to be holy as you are holy, that we would strive to be righteous people, not in our own strength and ability, not in self-righteousness, but we pray that we would be holy because of the holiness we've been given and that we would live out our new identity as followers of Jesus, people who have the righteousness of Christ. So Father, this morning we recognize that we are people prone to self-righteousness. We are people who are eager to pat ourselves on the back for our accomplishments and people who are quick to put others down so that we might lift ourselves up. And this morning, Father, we beg of you that you would continue to humble us in the gospel and help us to see our low state as saved sinners 
and yet our high estate as your sons and daughters. So, Father, this morning we come to you as children, expressing our dependence on our loving Father. And we come to you because you are working in our life, lives, continuing to make us more like your Son, Jesus. So, Father, as we look to your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to be compelled by our identity in Jesus and our connection to the church to live out our lives openly and boldly before men so that all can see the glories of the gospel displayed in our frail bodies. And Father, we pray this because we are dependent on the gospel. And apart from the gospel, we can do no good thing. So we beg of you again this morning that you would guide us according to your truth and that you would teach us to live according to the grace of your gospel. And we pray these things in Christ's glorious name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as I have the privilege to preach to you, I am going to come at you with a lot. And why is that? Well, it's because there is much to talk about from Scripture as it relates to what we're celebrating today. So I want to help you see today the significance of why we baptize why we value church membership, and why we receive communion together. You see, it's tempting in church just to go through motions and assume that everybody is on the same page, that we're doing these things for the same reason, and that we have the same understanding. But even as you've heard in the testimonies this morning, that's not a good assumption. Because the truth is, we come at things with our own experiences, and with our own prejudices, and with our own lens that sometimes colors and shapes the way we see things and can distort them away from the biblical reality. So this morning, I want to draw our attention to the topics of baptism, church membership, and the Lord's Supper, because these are things that are distinctive for us as Christians. They are the basis of what we believe and why we are gathered together as a local church. So, although Mike read Romans chapter 6, I have a confession. I'm not going to take you line by line through Romans chapter 6 this morning. We're going to look at several passages that support these truths and these doctrines because they're not clearly presented in one passage where it says you should be baptized, join a church, and then celebrate the Lord's Supper but they are laid out across the New Testament. And as we bring them together, there is a very vivid picture that we have of the local church. And that is, it is God's assembled people who are remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're counting on it for the salvation of our sins. So this morning, as we look at these different topics, I want to make the point to you very simply that Christians are people who openly identify with Jesus and his church. Christians are people who openly identify with Jesus and his church. There are many other things I could say to define a Christian, but this morning, as we think about baptism that we've just witnessed, as we think about the gathered church, which is what we are right now, and as we receive the elements of communion in a little while, these are things that show for all to see that we are people who place our trust and faith 
and our Lord Jesus Christ. All of us would acknowledge we live in a cultural moment that is fraught with identity politics and division. On a popular level, you've all heard of cancel culture, where we're quick to cancel people that are not quite like us, people that we don't see things eye to eye. And even among us as Christians, we are tempted over and over again to narrow our identity to subcategories that go beyond the gospel. In fact, I've called this at times adjective Christians. That is, people that say they're not just a Christian, but they are a certain kind of Christian, fill in the adjective. And as they do that, sometimes that's helpful for the sake of clarity, but sometimes it can also become a virtue signal of its own, that you're a better Christian, that you're a more righteous Christian, that you're a more knowledgeable Christian, or that you are somehow a Christian who is above other Christians. Those kinds of things are not helpful. And what I want to do today is I want to focus our hearts and our minds on what it means to be a follower of Jesus and someone who is committed to his church. That is the identity that it should most fundamentally identify who we are, that we are Christ followers committed to Christ's bride, the local church. So as we do that, I want us to see the three interrelated ideas this morning of baptism, membership, and communion as a part of our identity as Christ followers. The first point that I'll make to you is that baptism identifies who the believers in Jesus are. Baptism identifies who the believers in Jesus are. Just as an engagement ring symbolizes engagement and a wedding ring symbolizes marriage, baptism symbolizes our relationship with Jesus. It's not the ring that makes a couple engaged or a ring that designates that they are husband and wife, but it is their relationship with one another, the vows that they have promised to each other. And in the same way, the ceremony of baptism that we have just observed is not what saves May or Juliana or Nick or any of us but baptism symbolizes what has happened in their commitment to Christ and Christ's commitment to them. You see, baptism signals that we believe in Jesus. It shows that we are people who understand Jesus Christ and have placed our faith and trust in him alone. Why do we do this? Well, we do it because Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize new believers. In the Great Commission, which we often refer to in our church, Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples, and can you fill in the blank, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. One of the ways that we make disciples is introducing them to the gospel, calling them to repentance and faith, and then baptizing them for all to see to show that they have li their lives have been changed. Peter, when preaching at Pentecost, said this. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter was calling upon those at Pentecost to put their trust in Jesus and then to identify with Jesus. And as he did this, the disciples continued the command that the Lord had given them as they went to make more disciples. 
You see, the disciples were not making followers of themselves. They were not making Peterites or Johnites or fill-in-the-blankites. They were making Christians, those who were following Jesus with their whole lives. And as they received baptism, they were showing that they believed that Jesus had died and rose again for the forgiveness of their sins. This is at the very heart of what the gospel is. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said this of the gospel. He said, by the gospel, you are saved. And what is the gospel? He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul later wrote in 2 Corinthians, reemphasizing this point. He said in chapter 521 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Belief in the gospel is the prerequisite of baptism. We heard Nick say in his testimony that he had been baptized as an infant when he didn't know what was going on. He had no part in that process other than his parents brought him and he was presented for this right, but it was not an act of belief. And as Christians who follow the teachings of the Bible, we believe that baptism is reserved for believers, for people who consciously and willingly place their trust and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is why at Milton Community Church, we practice believers' baptism. We don't have two policies where we baptize or some infants, and then we baptize others who have placed their faith in Jesus, but we hold to one policy. And that policy is very simply that when a person acknowledges their sin and trusts Jesus Christ to be Savior, and they know that they have committed their life to Christ, then we invite them to be baptized. We reserve this for people who understand the gospel not for people who are passive participants because of their family or because of a church tradition or practice. In fact, the local church baptizes individuals who believe Jesus, and this is consistent with the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, at the great gathering of the early church there at Pentecost, after Peter's sermon that I quoted a few moments ago, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. God commands Christians to be baptized, and in this passage, over 3,000 people made a profession in Christ and followed that through by being identified with the church through baptism. I'm sure there were many other people present at that sermon at Pentecost, and what we don't have a record of is the apostles baptizing every member of everyone's family that day. Instead, it says those who accepted the message, there's an act of volition involved in responding to the gospel, that there's a conscious awareness that someone believes in Jesus, and that belief is what precedes baptism as we have seen this morning. Baptism is not a rite for infants, and it is not a ritual for parents, but it is an act of obedience for believers. So some might ask, well, when is old enough for someone to get baptized? If we're not baptizing babies, then how old does a person have to be? And I would say a person has to be old enough 
to understand the gospel and follow the teachings of Jesus? And you might say, well, that's not an answer. You didn't give a number. Like when we ask how old is old enough, we're wanting to know in digits, how old should someone be? Well, I would say a child can understand the gospel, but a child is also changeable, a child is impressionable, and a child wants to please their parents. So as a child would profess Christ, your duty as a Christian family would be to continue to encourage your child and to walk with them to make sure that they're living out the gospel. And we as a church would encourage you to wait until they're old enough to understand the teachings of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that they need to go to seminary and have a master's degree or higher in the Bible and theology. It just simply means to know that we want to see that they can tell us the gospel, that they can affirm their belief in the gospel, and they can even share the gospel with other people. So I'm not giving a specific age, but I would say at least double digits and more than likely in your mid-teens, even to late teens. This is something that around the world is more easily understood because the call and practice of baptism comes with a great cost. Because there are believers who are being baptized today that when they're lowered in the water and raised from the water, they are divorced from their families because their families will now reject them as people who've given up on their family, given up on their religion, given up on their culture, and all kinds of things will be accused against those brothers and sisters. And yet they know that by receiving baptism, they are a part of God's family. So no matter what may happen to their earthly family, they are now a part of the brotherhood and sisterhood of following Jesus. You see, baptism signals that we believe in Jesus, and it also symbolizes our union with Jesus. It symbolizes our union with Jesus. This is why, as Baptists, we practice baptism by immersion. Baptism by immersion. So what's immersion? That's a larger word that simply means we believe that you should be placed under the water and drawn out of the water as a part of your baptism. That's because we see baptism as a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Look back in Romans chapter 6 that Mike read for us in verse number 3, where the apostle writes this. He says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism very visibly pictures Jesus' death and burial for our sin, as well as his resurrection for our new life. When we're lowered into the waters of baptism, we're showing everyone that we've died to our sin. And then when we are raised up out of the water, we're showing everyone that we're identifying with a new life that has been found in Jesus Christ. Over the years, I've had the privilege of baptizing many people, but one of them or two of them really stand out in my mind. One in particular, I was baptizing an elderly woman, and when I say elderly, she was nearly 80 years old, and she had been sprinkled as a baby, but she said, you know, I've come to realize that while that was significant for my parents, that meant nothing for me, 
and I have placed my faith in Jesus, I am a follower of his, and I want to be baptized by immersion to show everyone that I'm a follower of Jesus. She said, but there's two things that is going to make this difficult for me. She said, number one, I don't trust men. And to get baptized, I have to go with you. And that leads to the second thing, I don't know how to swim and I'm scared to death of water. And she said, I don't know how this is going to work because I'm scared to death, but I think it's the right thing to do. Well, we had a baptism service for our sister and we had as a church the most incredible symbol of God's grace. Literally as my sister came into the pool and we did this in a heated swimming pool at the school where our church met at the time and she was shaking like a leaf and she came up to me in the pool where no one could hear and she said, I'm scared to death but I trust you and I know this is the right thing to do. And I said, sister, this is going to be great. Well, we went through the ceremony. We said similar things to what Luke said to our candidates today. And then I lowered her into the water as she was trembling. And I brought her back out of the water. And I'm not mystical or charismatic. But it was literally as if a metamorphosis had happened in our presence. She came out of that water beaming with a smile. The shakes and the shivers had all disappeared and she was incredibly calm and confident. And everybody in the church service that day said that was the most incredible baptism that we have seen because they knew her story, they knew her fears, and they watched her obedience because my sister was identifying her union with Jesus. Now, it's not always that dramatic, and that's not the point of my story. But I'm saying that to say that she understood that her baptism was because she had decided to follow Jesus. And that in spite of her fears and her anxieties, she set those aside to show the church and show the watching world that she was a follower of Jesus. She was picturing her union with Christ and she was acknowledging that her sinful self had died with Jesus and she had new life even as she neared 80 years old she had new life because of the resurrection of Jesus. Again, look at Romans chapter 6, verse number 5. It says, For if we have been united with him in death like this, or like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin." Baptism shows that we're united with Jesus in death to sin, and we're united with him in resurrection unto eternal life. The old person is crucified when we trust Jesus to save us, and the new person comes alive. That body of ours that was once completely turned over to sin is now turned over to Christ. And as we receive as we receive baptism, we're showing the world that we believe this, that we're now one with Jesus, and that we want to follow him. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that dipped, being dipped in the waters of the baptism are going to suddenly and magically make us sinless, but it's simply to say that there's a break in our old life as we begin this new life with Christ. And baptism announces our union with Jesus by connecting us to the church. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes this in verse 13. He says, For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one, but of many. Paul here is making the point that we are baptized not because it's a private ritual for our own edification. We're not baptized because it's a tradition that our church upholds, or we're not baptized because we're Baptists, and that's what Baptists do. But he's saying we're baptized because we are united with the Spirit of God and connected to his church. The church alone administers baptism to identify the people of God. In the Great Commission, that's what Jesus was authorizing when he told the apostles to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The implication is that the disciples would baptize their disciples who would in turn baptize their disciples. The local church is formed out of disciples who are gathered to worship God. And when the church baptizes someone, we are publicly affirming their profession of faith as credible. This is why we would hold that you shouldn't be baptized at a summer camp. You shouldn't be baptized in your backyard by yourself with just your family. Baptism is not a private rite, but it is the public declaration of your faith in Jesus, and it is regulated by the church. Today, we saw May, Juliana, and Nick receive baptism as a public declaration of their new identities with Jesus. And what amazing testimonies. Thank you, Benjamin, for capturing those and editing. And thank you to May, Juliana, and Nick for standing or sitting on the other side of the camera. I know how intimidating that can be, but you guys did great. And I want to encourage you, church, Go to them. Hear more of their story. You only got to hear two minutes of a testimony, and there's so much more. As May said, there were lots and lots and lots of conversations that have led to this. And we have the privilege as the church not only to baptize them, but to receive them as brothers and sisters and to walk with them in relationship. This leads to the second major point I want to make this morning. The first one was that baptism identifies us with Jesus. The second point is that Jesus identifies believers with the church. Jesus identifies believers with the church. Over the years as a pastor, I've been asked a lot of questions about church. I've been asked a lot of practical questions about Christian living. And one of the more common questions centers around the issue of parenting and how to raise children. So I have a handful of books that I like to recommend and give out to people. And one of them that I give out frequently, especially to people that have middle school and up children, is a book called How Children Raise Parents. I quote it frequently, so it may be my one string on my guitar, I'm not sure. But this book has made an impact on the way I think about the Christian life and the way I disciple my children. But the author poignantly says this. He says, you get to pick your spouse, but God gets to pick your children. God sends you exactly the kids you need to grow you up and to help you trust him more. Now, some of us would like to have different children sometimes, especially when they're being disobedient or rebellious or questioning their very identity as one of our children. 
And yet those are the people that God has graciously given us to make us more like Christ. It works the same way in the local church, that God places you in a church with people that are meant to cause you to lean into the gospel and to help you grow up. You may choose where to place your membership as a Christian. You can join our church or you can join another church. But whichever church you join and where you are a covenant member, God is going to use the believers there to help you mature in your faith. You see, the local church consists of the people of God, and those people are not always perfect. In fact, you're not always perfect. And God uses your imperfections to help other people mature and grow as well. Sadly, however, we live in a culture of petty preferences that pushes us away from commitment and relationships. And we cancel people that we don't like or people that make us feel uncomfortable. In fact, it's almost become a joke because it's so prevalent that we cancel anything that might trigger something in us, even though we make fun of trigger warnings and safe spaces, we all do it. But church, I'm here to tell you, is not a safe place. It can be uncomfortable, it can be challenging, and it can be convicting. And in all these ways, God wants to use the local church to point us away from ourselves and to Jesus Christ. God will use the church, he will use our church to mature your faith if you will allow him. You see, church membership confirms your profession of faith. Church membership confirms your profession of faith. In the book of Acts, we've been looking at chapter 2. I've quoted quite a bit from Peter's sermon and then the response to his sermon. At the conclusion of Acts chapter 2, this is what Luke said. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The point here is that there were people who trusted Jesus, they were known, and they submitted themselves to the church. They were added. It wasn't just a group of people that, well, how many people came forward today, and let's add that group of 3,000? No, they came, and they were known among the people who received them, and they were known among the people they committed to. Paul went on in 1 Corinthians 12 later and writes this. He said, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. In order for there to be a body, there have to be individual parts, and those parts must be known. The church consists of born-again Christians who repent of their sin and believe the gospel. The church is not meant to be a mixture of unbelievers and believers, but it is meant to be an assembly of people who have knowingly put their faith and confidence in Jesus. So by calling someone a believer and receiving them into church membership, we are saying that they are a follower of Jesus. This is why we believe baptism and church membership go together. Baptism declares our commitment to follow Jesus, and it indicates our communion with the family of God. That's why I said earlier, we don't believe you should be baptized at summer camp, because that's not your church family. That's not where you will have communion with the people of God. It may be an emotional high and an incredible experience, but it's not faithful to the way baptism is taught in the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, new believers were added to the church by their profession of faith and when they were baptized. You see, God uses the local church to test our testimony and to confirm our profession of faith. 
That's why I didn't give you an exact age for when children should be baptized, because your job as parents and our job as the covenant community around your family is to test the profession of your children and to make sure that they know the gospel, that they understand the gospel, and that they have submitted to the gospel. And when we do this, membership is not only confirming our profession of faith, but it's also connecting us to other believers. Membership is connecting us to other believers. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The point that Paul is making is he was taking disparate people and bringing them together, united under the banner of the gospel, and making them the household of God, the place where God dwelled among his people together. Church membership demonstrates God's presence and work among us, but it also means that we have to be together for that to happen. That's why we don't support solo churches, which would be... There are different words and ways that it has been expressed over the years, but one would be a family church, where it's just you and no one else, your family. We would say that the local church is, consists of multiple believers across several families coming together, recognizing the power of the gospel at work in our lives. This is why Peter says, once you were not a people, but now through the gospel you have been made a people. Once you were strangers and aliens and exiles, but now you are a chosen royal priesthood of God. Therefore, we should identify with God's brothers and sisters as a part of the local church. Jesus himself established the church. He's the cornerstone of the church. He holds the church together, and we are his household. We are his bride and the family of God. Before our conversion, we belonged to the world. But after our conversion, we belong to Christ and his church. This is why I titled my sermon that Christians, or my big idea is that Christians openly identify with Jesus and his church because we belong to God. Well, what is a church? James Sullivan has defined it this way. He said, a church is a body of baptized believers who are bound together voluntarily by the common bond of faith and love for Jesus Christ working together under God's Holy Spirit to do his work on earth. There are several things that stand out in that definition, but I want to draw your attention to the fact that he says, a church is a body of baptized believers who are bound together voluntarily by the common faith and love for Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting the way he turned that phrase that we're bound voluntarily, that we are covenanting with one another, in other words, we are making promises to one another that we will help one another through the ups and downs of the Christian life. When husbands and wives are married, they share wedding vows. Forgive me, I'm old-fashioned, but I like traditional wedding vows over choose-your-own-adventure sentimental vows. And one of the reasons I like the traditional ones is because they underscore the commitment and the sacrifice and the difficulty that are a part of marriage. Well, as we have covenanted together in a church, we've not shared vows with each other that we're somehow in a strange way married all to one another, 
but we have made a promise. And that's why later in our service this morning, we will read our covenant to remind ourselves of the commitment that we've made to one another. And yes, they're old-fashioned and old-school, but they underscore the importance of what it is to be members together of the local church. So when we read those in a few minutes, think about them that way and be encouraged. Because Jonathan Lehman has said this to summarize my point. He said, church membership is all about a church taking specific responsibility for you and you taking specific responsibility for a church. That's a great summary statement of why we have a covenant and why we make these promises to each other. Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman in their book, Rediscover Church, have said this about the local church. They said, no one gets the church they want, but everyone gets the church they need. We all need churches that call us to something greater than ourselves. We need churches that call us finally to God. When we follow the example of Jesus, we get the church we need. That's an important word that we need to hear in our culture when everybody wants a church to be an affinity group. They want it to be a place that simply reinforces our social status, our cultural biases, or our life expectations. And yet, they are reminding us what the scriptures say, that we may not get the church we want, but we'll get the church that God is going to use to make us more like Christ. But it involves commitment and giving ourselves to it. This weekend, many of our women came together for our women's retreat, and they had a fantastic time, so I've been told. The retreat showed the ladies that we are connected together like a family within the body of Christ. The ladies shared meals together, they laughed together, they learned together, they talked together. They did a lot of things together and there was good times and good memories formed. They lived out what it means to be the church in relationship with one another. So as we celebrate baptism and we stand on the importance of church membership, we do all of this because of the commands of Jesus and the community that Jesus is building. In light of that, it leads to my final point this morning, and that is that the church identifies believers with communion. So baptism identifies us with Jesus, Jesus identifies us with the church, and then the church identifies believers with communion. Communion are the elements that are represented before me on these trays. We have the element of the bread and of the wine. These elements are symbols of the life and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And communion involves the whole church. Again, this is not a private ritual for you. It is a public remembrance of Christ with his church. The Apostle Paul gave instructions that follow what Jesus initiated at his last supper with his disciples. Paul affirms that the meal called the Lord's Supper, which we call communion, and he gives specific instructions for receiving it. Hear what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. The word that I would underscore for you out of that passage is that we are participants in the life 
and death of Christ when we receive the elements of communion. And I notice I'm saying we because the Apostle Paul goes on to say in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians that when we come together, we receive communion. In fact, he says the phrase, when you come together, five times in chapter 11, emphasizing that the context for communion is the gathered church of God. And Paul provides detailed instructions for how to receive it when the church comes together. You see, communion involves all of us, and it proclaims the sacrifice of Jesus. Hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 about that sacrifice. He said, for, when I for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did you hear that last phrase, that the Lord's Supper proclaims the Lord's death until he comes? In other words, it proclaims the gospel of Jesus. And by partaking of the elements of the bread and the wine, we are confessing that we need a Savior and that we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. We're also confessing that we are accepting the atoning work of Jesus, that his righteous life was given as a sacrifice for our sinful lives, and that his substitutionary atonement gives us the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness makes us right before God the Father. What an incredible thing. It's another symbol of the gospel that we believe. Communion keeps the person and work of Jesus central in the life of our church. Some, again, ask, how often should we celebrate communion? Should we do it every week? Should we do it every month, every quarter, once a year? There are debates and discussions about frequency. I would just emphasize, the, the Lord says, as often as you do it. There is a little bit of ambiguity there. But the point is, we should do it to remind ourselves that Jesus is the focus of our faith. In a world that is complex, in a world that constantly distracts us, Communion brings us back to the centrality of Jesus. It helps us rehearse the gospel through this simple meal to be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus. As we are preparing to receive communion this morning, I want to remind you that communion is for believers in Jesus Christ who have been scripturally baptized. We practice something called close communion where we invite other believers to receive communion with us if you are persevering in faith, if you have been scripturally baptized, and if you're not under church discipline in another assembly. But we would ask you not to receive communion if you are someone who has not placed your trust in Christ, or if you're someone who has, is under church discipline and is needing to resolve that. We would also ask you not to receive communion if you have not been scripturally baptized because we see baptism, membership, and communion interconnected with one another. So this morning as I conclude my message and as we prepare to receive communion, I want to challenge you and ask you, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, I want to beg of you to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and do it this morning 
in the quietness of your own heart and mind, and certainly you can come and speak to me or one of the elders or perhaps a family member that is here with you, and we would love to help you see from Scripture how Jesus is your Savior. I also want to offer the question that if you are a believer in Jesus and have not been scripturally baptized, would you consider declaring your faith publicly before this church and the world? Would you openly identify with Jesus through the symbol of baptism and join together with us as a member of Milton Community Church? In all these ways, my intention this morning was to remind us of the basics of the gospel and to challenge us to live in obedience to Christ through baptism, church membership, and the Lord's Supper. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then Brandon and the musicians are going to come, and they're going to play a hymn for us. And while they're playing that hymn, I want to invite you, if you're a believer in Jesus who's been scripturally baptized and in right relationship with the local church, I want to invite you to come to the front with your family and receive the elements of communion. And then you'll return to your seat holding the elements until Pastor Jerry comes and leads us in receiving the element of the bread and the element of the wine. So let me pray for communion, and then we will worship as we receive these elements together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that guides us in all truth. Father, we acknowledge that left to our own devices, we would come up with our own traditions and our own rituals that would lead us away from Christ. And God, we also have to confess that this morning as we've looked at baptism, church membership, and the Lord's Supper, that there are times that we've allowed our experiences and our opinions to come into conflict with your word. And Father, I pray that you would help us to return to the simplicity of what you have laid out in Scripture that we would call sinners to repent and believe Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and that we would baptize believers by immersion to symbolize their unity with you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would highlight church membership to hold one another accountable, and that we would be the kind of church that would love and provoke one another to good works. And finally, God, I pray this morning as we receive the elements of communion that you would recenter our hearts on Christ. Take the distractions that we've experienced this week, perhaps even this morning. Take the sins that we have committed against you. And Father, we pray that as we receive the elements of communion, we would be reminded of the vastness of the gospel and the healing that is found in the atonement and that we would claim the promises that you have given to us, that our sin has been taken away as far as the east is from the west, and that you have dealt with them once for all through your son, Jesus. So guide us and direct us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.